0: Hello and welcome to the Cloister Bell podcast. I'm Liam, and uh, I jump. Join- <laughs> Start again. <laughs> keep, going. keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah. You- you'll get there. <laughs> Thanks. Please, you've got confidence in me. Right. <laughs>
1: Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster.
0: The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The Cloister Bell? Oh no. Hello and welcome to the Cloister Bell podcast. I'm Liam and I'm joined by Rob. Hi Rob. Hi (laughs) Liam. And how's it going? Great. <laughs> no, it's not, you liar. We've almost wasted an entire hour getting this bloody thing set up because of technical problems. I. Ugh. It's been mm. annoying. Not at all pissed <laughs> off. No. Anyway, apart uh, from that, how's it all going? Fine. Yeah. Just
1: ready to go to bed. <laughs> Had enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just. Ugh. And now we're just trying to get this this, this damn thing sort of just to start recording. What's the point, Rob? Yeah. Wasn't that the same last week? Yeah, but this was worse. This was worse. Yeah.
1: We didn't know who the problem was.
0: No, it was saying that uh, you were online. Um, no, hang on. It said that I was online, but you were off. And then at your end, it was saying the opposite. Anyway, we're sick as a chip, listeners, so <sighs> that's it. Bye! tune in next week when we can actually be bothered.
1: We'll best get on with it.
0: Uh, I suppose get it out of the way. Um uh today's podcast will be going uh, we're going to be reviewing uh, the Leisure Hive, uh which is the first televised story of season 18, which was Tom Baker's final season uh in Doctor Who. But uh before we get on with that, just uh just our usual uh chat. Uh what have you been up to if anything? What have I been up to?
1: Not a great deal. I don't think I've watched much. Uh, Oh, yeah, me and my wife started The Matrix for whatever crazy reason. Oh, okay. We we thought, oh, there's the new Matrix. We'll stick that on. Mm -hmm. Well, let's start at the beginning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right, okay. That old thing. Right, okay.
1: So we watched the first one. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It it all went downhill from there. (laughs) So... (laughs)
0: Because I have, I haven't watched those in years. Um, don't watch them. What well, any Again. of them? <laughs> does I mean, does the does the first one still hold up? I think
1: so. I don't think it's like pure art, mm. like what people say. No, I never thought Just that. A film I, thought it was, that's I thought it was a
0: well-made, right. decent, uh, engaging film. Yeah. You know, with the you know, it was very pioneering at the time with groundbreaking special effects and yeah.
1: Sure. And in in that respect, I guess, so was the second.
0: Yeah, see, because my memory of the second one was that it was... That was just an enjoyable action ride. Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. The third... We started it last week, but we're only halfway through it. We just kind of gave up. We're watching watching it like little bursts at a time. Right. Um, (laughs) Right. I don't... I think i thought much of it at the time and oh uh, i don't know it's it seems really something wrong like it's badly written mm. badly made i don't know
0: yeah i've only seen it once which was at the cinema and i thought oh my god it's really gone downhill but mm. I remember enjoying the second one quite a bit. I didn't think it was as good as the first, but I just thought you know it was a you know for what it was, it was an entertaining, well made film. Um, and the first one, I don't so-
1: even want to watch the new one. I'm sick of it.
0: Oh, <laughs> persevere! Have you not decided to include the uh, uh, what was it called, Animatrix?
1: Yeah, I got that down. Got the DVD out. Right, okay. It's one of those. Remember those old cardboard DVD cases? Yes, yeah, yeah. I remember those. Yeah. My wife was like, what the hell's that? <laughs> yeah. Well, she didn't want to watch that, it turns out.
0: Mm, probably just as well. My memory of those is that they were actually quite depressing. <laughs> I guess so. They, they weren't awful. No, 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 they weren't awful, but uh, yeah, I just thought <laughs> thought quite depressing. When did that come out? Was that 2003? Hmm.
1: Uh, no, uh, I'm gonna say yeah, 2003.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have you? <laughs> did you did you just Google it or something? Have you got the cover there? No, no. Um, I remember, um, buying the DVD when we were in sixth form, and was it as late as that? You see, I thought it was earlier than that. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, sorry, carry on.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking... Oh, actually, 2002, uh, I'm pretty sure we were running around to our own Matrix film
0: back then. No, I wasn't there. You, were, you weren't there. I've seen some of the footage. No. <laughs> which you've still got, which <laughs> I don't understand. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Does, does, does that... Well, actually, hang on. A does that hold you, up? But it's, Is that no, better than the third film?
1: It's much better, yeah. Um, I did a remastered version of it, uh, maybe a year after, and a few years ago, I wow, upscaled okay. it to HD, and uh, sort of the colour out, and um, and then talking amongst the people that were in it, like, let's repurpose it and make a new story, and make this flashbacks, but not say it's the Matrix.
0: <laughs> For copyright reasons. Yeah, well, uh, um, all right. So we're not, we're not even going to get a 4k uh, upgrade. If if you want it, I'm just saying there's a market for it. (laughs) No.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, but there's, I'm sure there's lots of videos of you, but, um, I, I respect your wishes and just keep that on lockdown.
0: If you respected my wishes, Rob, you'd have them destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> don't want those things seeing the light of day. Yeah. My attempts of acting as a, I don't know, thirteen-year-old. No, it doesn't bear thinking about. Awful. <laughs> Do you remember that time when we were uh, we were writing a, well, um, we were wanting to write a movie together. <laughs> you and I were ended having an argument because I was refusing. <laughs> to share the writing or something just generally being an arse about it is that right <laughs> oh yeah maybe um
1: I, it's tough because uh like everyone mm. wa- wants to be in control and everyone's got this vision but you know like if someone else has got idea got an idea <laughs> it's like, well that's not happening <laughs> <clears throat> um yeah i've got a i've got an interview with you
0: oh i remember that was that with and, and, the um? He- <laughs> what was that a famous advert with? The, was it like Eric the Puppet or something? And you 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 had that
1: flat? Oh, flat Eric! You're thinking of you're thinking of something else when you hosted um our Origin documentary. Oh, is that what?
0: That was? <laughs> is that what was that? Was okay. <laughs> I didn't realise there was a, I did a, yeah. I did another interview.
1: Yeah, you, you did. You did a. You did the VHS documentary. I th- no one knows what we're talking about, but um, it's fine.
0: All that the listeners need to know is that, um, yeah, we uh, the, there's there's yeah, videos of, out there, of but us we'll trying it. to make it yeah, some sort of it, yeah. psychological drama. I think it was, um, mm. and oh, uh, <laughs> the memories. <laughs> yeah.
1: <clears throat> oh well. Um, there's been a rumour i don't, I'm not one to kind of bring up news rumours but um, a big one that's been going around is that Disney Plus could Yes, I heard about to.
0: that um, I'm just putting it down as to a wild rumour um, Yeah I don't want that to be true, do you? Um.
1: Yes and no. Mainly no, but it it's intriguing.
0: Yeah, it, yeah, it is intriguing. It's sort of. Do you think there's any kernel of truth in it? Possibly. Possibly, you
1: know. Sometimes these kind of things surface, and and it turns yeah. out to be true. Um, I don't think. Like. I know the BBC's got a bit of an uncertain future, Um, so there's going to be issue with um, who owns Doctor Who as a property. Um, Yes, we know it's being made by a third party now, Bad Wolf Wolf Productions. So
0: Mm
1: -hmm. maybe that's the way forward. It needs to evolve. I don't think if it went to Disney Plus, it would become something completely ridiculous like people kind of assume star wars would be stupid because it's disney i mean it's not it's still star wars but uh i don't know
0: it's uh, yeah it's something to keep an eye on especially as you say because the future of the bbc is very Mm. uncertain and in fact actually um when we're the week that we're recording um the french government have um have agreed to basically sell off their equivalent, the BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot what that's called, but basically, uh yeah, French, the French national television, whatever it was called, they've agreed to to sell that off. Mm. The um, BFC,
1: no, the the FBC.
0: Yeah, so Yeah, yeah. I'm making this up. Just to, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just whatever. I just yeah, whatever. Anyway, whatever. Because no, no one, cares about France apart from the French, yeah, Whatever. Uh, but uh, that's not true. I'm joking. I'm not. No one gives a toss about the French. Um, wow. But anyway, they, they've they've basically sold. I'm I'm joking. Uh, um. <laughs> or oh, 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 am I? Or oh, whatever. I'll just shut up. Anyway, they they've sold off um uh their equivalent to the BBC, mm-hmm. um, and it's. And even before then, the, the, the future of the BBC has been in question. And in fact, funny enough, one person who's been very vocal about that for, for years is um, is Russell T. Davis himself. In fact, he was uh, at an event a few years ago, and he was basically saying that the argument for the BBC has been has been completely lost now. Right, okay. Um, and the way that it will eventually go is for a subscription service. In fact, I'm sure if my memory is right um he said that before the traction for that argument really started to kick off and within the last few years there has been a very strong argument for for people who are against the bbc license fee of saying look if the bbc is that great subscription service and if it's that good people will subscribe to it well yeah. so yeah that argument yeah um so the argument has gained a lot of traction So, and Russell T. Davis was at the, the, the front of that obviously seeing the logic of where it was going to go. Um, if it is completely sold off, what, what element of the BBC will remain? What parts will be sold off? Will Doctor Who be part of that? In which case, is this rumour that Disney will acquire some sort of rights with the BBC, whether that will be ownership of the the property or if it's just in relation to distribution. Not sure. Mm. But the fact that the, that the rumours are starting now, if there's any kernel of truth in them, maybe it's just to future-proof the property to ensure that when the BBC does go, because I, I do think it's a case of a matter, a ma- of, when. A matter of when now rather than if... When the BBC does go, um, the future of Doctor Who is secured because that's already been planned for.
1: And Russell did kind of mention a few years ago that he he would have done Doctor Who as this multi-show franchise. In fact, he did try that kind of before it was a Mm -hmm. big thing.
0: Yeah, it's a bit funny because um, I'm kind of seesawing between whether I think that's a good idea or not. Uh, we've talked about that before. And um, I'm sure we talked about this with Harry and Luke. I can't remember if it was on their podcast or the other way around, but I'm sure we were talking about that. And I think actually during the, during the point of us talking about that, I think I was kind of won over a bit. And uh, I went, actually, I can kind of see the... The merits of Doctor Who going down that route. Mm. But I've kind of I backtracked a bit on that. Um, and the idea of Doctor Who just becoming this multiverse mm. thing. Well um, it's not up to you. No, no it's not. I know I'm just talking i just talking in general. I, I'm not that I'm not that keen on it as an idea. But then sometimes I am, I can see some yeah, between I it. Know. I
1: kind of really like things when they were interconnected when we had Torchwood and Sarah
0: Jane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, whatever he's got, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of attention and a lot of planning going into it. I mean, because he's always be, he's always been honest. He said, you know, when he initially left and for many years afterwards, he said that really he he the likelihood of him coming back to Doctor Who was was you know quite small. I don't think he he said never say never, but I think he said that the only thing that would interest him if is if something if he would be able to do something entirely new with it um so obviously something's intrigued him and obviously there would be negotiations of going what he wants to do with it and he's whatever he's got in his head he's been allowed to do and allowed to run with it um the 60th anniversary special seems a bit from the little that we know f- uh, about it it seems a bit interesting because i think my impression of it is obviously it's going to be canon in some respects but maybe not and it's really just going to be a way of just celebrating Doctor Who in general. What do you mean by not? Well, um, bringing David Tennant's Doctor in with with Donna, um, it doesn't seem... I mean, obviously, we don't know the, the plots or anything like that. But in terms mm. of the little that we do know, and with you know, the costume design and so on, it looks like it's a continuation of something. But obviously, that couldn't be a continuation of what was established in... Um the end of time Mm. so i think it's a case of let's not let's not be bothered even though it's an anniversary special not let's not be bogged down by the continuity of what's gone on before let's just get these characters and get these elements and do just tell a really good cracking story with them and let's have something fun i mean the Mm. fact that there's rumors that uh beep the meep is going to be in it which I hope it's true because I love that character. Yeah, uh, I think Big Finish have you, uh, used that character recently, but that was a character who was, uh, who was just in um, some Tom Baker co- um, comics, Doctor Who yeah. uh, comics. This big fluffy creature who looks friendly and everything, but is actually uh, <laughs> absolutely maybe maybe psychotic. we should do
1: those comics. Uh,
0: yeah, maybe we should actually. I w- I wouldn't mind doing that. I think because I remember reading them and they were an awful an awful lot of fun. Mm. Uh yeah. and I, I uh put it on the list. Yeah, we'll put that on the list. And I, I'm sure when a it was Doctor list. Who magazine's 35th anniversary they did a comic with um uh where they had the, uh, if I remember right I might I might be mixing up two different stories and mashing <laughs> them into one but my memory was it was celebrating 30, 35 no it wasn't the magazine it was the Doctor Who the 30th anniversary of Doctor Who and they had the beige guardian um, rather than the black and white, and right. uh, he was just this weak, pathetic character. And you had all the the doctors uh, interacting with each other, trying to get out of this absolutely bonkers scenario. The eighth Doctor uh, lands in BBC Television Centre during the nineteen seventies with his companion, and they they're in the blue Peter Garden. And went, eh, this is this is basically very familiar. Tom Baker's Doctor. It's actually it's just Tom Baker um dressed up as the doctor sort of like comes in and it's all this mad I, actually I, I think i am conf- i think i am confusing two completely different comics was up. this a dream <laughs> no it wasn't a dream uh anyway um beep the meeps like the villain and um yeah. tom <laughs> baker basically wins the day by driving beep the meep insane brilliant yeah a lot of fun yeah <laughs> um
1: uh. Uh, speaking of Disney Plus, there's been a big, uh, well, not Disney Plus, Marvel. Um, there's been all the Marvel stuff at the San Diego Comic Con. Has that
0: reached you? Uh, a little bit. Wasn't there supposed to be some rumours that um, Henry Carver was supposed to turn up and then didn't? Wasn't uh, that a big thing? I don't know. Oh, Okay.
1: I don't know, maybe you're more on the loop than me. I don't know.
0: <laughs> but uh, the, the one thing that I, I have picked up on that is apparently um, Disney... Is it Disney? Anyway, or is it Marvel? I don't know. There's, there's so much property out there and it's just insane. But there's going to be all, all these... Uh, yeah, Marvel Studios. All these um, spin-offs uh, have been announced, but they weren't announced at the convention, which apparently has confused some people. What stuff? Oh, I don't know. I'm not really. I'm not remotely interested. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Well, carry on. What are you talking so about?
1: Kevin Feige was on stage, um, head of Marvel, and he announced the upcoming lineup of films and TV shows. Right. Um, yeah. So we're currently in phase four of the MCU at the moment. Yeah. Which is due to come to an end, and this has been a bit of a quiet phase because this, this started after the last Avengers film so there's been no kind of clear narrative um, connecting them all just yet, well it, it, it is there but it's quite subtle uh, but all of a sudden we've got this big road map um, for the next few years so they've announced the phases 5 and 6 Um, In Phase 5, one of the biggest reveals was probably a Daredevil revival of the Netflix TV show on Disney+. Uh, And quite a few films in there, and they've announced the... uh, To end, Phase 6 is going to be a big Avengers two-parter. The the Kang Dynasty. Um, Kang the Conqueror was introduced in the Loki TV show um so he's going to be the the big new villain for the next couple of years um and then Avengers Secret Wars as well but oh we had the trailer for Black Panther Wakanda Forever um which is the sequel to Black Panther uh, but Chadwick Boseman died um last it was last year tragically so um they've went ahead with the production um so it seems seems interesting that they've uh, they've went ahead with that so see what that's like so is there anything you've been up to or watching
0: uh we've well, still been carrying on with the um weekly trips to the cinema to see the bond films so um the time recording the the recent one that i've seen was the living daylights and that was fantastic i mean, timothy dalton's my favorite bond so I was really, really looking forward to to seeing The Living Daylights, and that was, oh, it was fantastic. And for a long time, I've thought, I've always said that From Russia with Love is my favourite Bond. It actually might be The Living Daylights, although it could be on a magic service. I don't know i which service it. But it was, it was a really, really good cinematic experience. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. One, I think it's a very good film in general anyway, and I've always thought that. But to finally see it on the big screen, it was just fully engaging from beginning to end. I just think it's the perfect. Viewing experience has got a really good story, phenomenally good cast, really well directed and edited. John Barry's score is brilliant. Um, and just it just has every, just the, the the tone that it goes through. You know, you've got the the, hum- the humor, the action, the emotion, uh, the intrigue. I just think it's a really, really good um, fully engaging, satisfying film experience, and I absolutely loved it. And what was interesting was, uh, I think a lot of people felt the same. To the point where the Living Daylights was actually trending on Twitter, and funny enough, oh, really? yeah, ITV's recently got into this odd thing where they're scheduling the exact same James Bond film, which has been shown at the cinema on that day, but most people on, on Twitter were talking about having seen it at the cinema, and uh, what it is, it's. Um, I don't know how you pronounce it. Is it is it View or Vue? I'd say The View. The View. Okay, so View, view Cinema um, shows uh, the James Bond film on a Saturday. Then Cineworld and Odeon showed on the following Monday. And what I was going to do was, because I, I I enjoyed seeing The Living Daylights that much, I was going to, right, I'm going to the cinema and I'm seeing it again. So I was going to go to Cineworld because that's the, that's the nearest. Uh, The Cineworld in Newcastle they really so they they put it in the the smallest screen and i went no i i'm not doing that that's just going to ruin what was a really good memory in fact because the weekend before uh, i went to a friend's wedding and that was fantastic that was at anna garden and i uh, thoroughly enjoyed that that was absolutely brilliant and in fact uh caught up uh with a, an old university friend who I haven't seen in about ten years, he was there, so that was a really, really good catch up. Uh, that was great. But what that meant, Rob, was that I missed the uh, I missed seeing a view to a kill. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Bloody friends getting married. So <laughs> what I had to do there was, is that, well, I'll 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 go on. So the wedding was on the Saturday. I'd, uh, I went to Sydney World on the Monday to see a view to a kill, and I think I was very fortunate because I think that was probably the one time. Sydney World and Newcastle actually showed one of the Bond films in one of the proper big screens, so I think it was very lucky. Oh yeah. Uh, but the Living Daylights, they they stuck it in one of the tiny screens. License to Kill is obviously going to be shown soon, so I was having a look at, and again they've stuck it in one of the tiny screens. So. Oh, I
1: hate going to those screens. Yeah, they, they did. Usually, th- if you if you're late going to see a film as well, like it's mm. the end of the month, yeah, it's probably the last screen in. So they stick it, stick it in the small room. And it's... You know what? The don't... When you go to those screens, it's the kind of people running it that forget to turn the light off for 20 minutes or whatever. <laughs> it's shining in your face.
0: Well, I mean, it, well, it's disappointing because when um, The French Dispatch, which was uh, the most recent Wes Anderson film which came out last year, I, I went to the cinema to see that. And this... This, it hadn't been out that long, and they stuck that in one of the small screens as well, and it, it does it does have an effect. I still enjoyed the film, um, but you're cramped. It's boiling. You can hear the the sound of the projector whirring. Mm. It's not a great experience, and it'd be like wh- why why even bother showing it if if you've got a a screen like that? So you watching
1: know. it on the telly.
0: Yeah, well, you, you may as well, actually. You may as well. But anyway, uh, going back to uh, being positive, uh, it was generally seen. The Living Daylights was, was just absolutely superb. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that. So, yeah, um, so that's be, sort of like uh, the big thing. In terms of television, um, I've been watching Porridge, um, which for those uh, people who may not know, uh, is a British sitcom from the 1970s. Um, that was... A, all the episodes on iPlayer, really, really enjoying that. But um, also, I don't think I've been watching anything. I watched a
1: bit of Danger Mouse on Britbox. Oh,
0: did you? Is that yeah. like the original one with David Jason yeah, doing the voice? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good.
1: Um, and that kind of spiraled off to me watching episodes of Duckula on YouTube. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, brilliant. And still enjoyable?
1: Oh, yeah. I think I know every frame. <laughs> I've got the Duckula DVDs anything oh, kind of thing is. I'll save if I'm if I'm ill or something and I just need to just be cheered up.
0: <laughs> oh, uh actually one thing. Um the uh the, the Blu-ray box set for Dalek Invasion of Earth twenty one fifty AD got released, so uh, I've got that. So uh, again been watching some of the the special features on there which was just, which was nice. Oh. Um Have
1: you watched the film yet?
0: No no not yet, but uh, I am really really looking you forward did, you to it. You
1: didn't me. go to the cinema, did you?
0: No, no, I didn't. I have seen those films at the cinema, but yeah. uh, about. I thought if you have gone, you kept that ago, quiet. What's that?
1: I thought if you if you did go, you, you kept that
0: quiet. Didn't invite me. <laughs> no, I couldn't have done that, Rob, because I know that you really wanted to see them as well, didn't you? Yeah.
1: So what you done this week, Liam? Oh yeah, went to see Daleks Invasion
0: of Earth* with my mates. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and how does that make you feel, Rob? No, uh, no, I, th- I think. Um, I, f- I forgot which date that was shown. I think it was. A, it was a bit. Yeah, I couldn't make it either. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, Tyneside Cinema showed showed them uh, on the fiftieth anniversary. You're right. Okay. Um, yeah. So I have seen them at the cinema. It was, which was all right. I think I think uh, because it was the fiftieth anniversary and everything. I think uh, people were expecting a bigger crowd than what what there actually was. Right. There, there was one guy. Uh, shouldn't have been because we were all you know we're all comfortable and everything but i think he felt a bit self-conscious because he was the he he wore the seventh doctor's uh, pullover jumper and he was the only one who was wearing anything remotely doctor who and the fact that there wasn't that much of a big crowd i think uh yeah. i think he felt a bit self-conscious yeah. unfortunately
1: yeah it's not even canon it's it's the wrong universe <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what was he thinking yeah um <laughs> But I do look forward show. to watching the films again because it has been a long time and they are really enjoyable. Um, mm. Of the two, which is your favourite?
1: They don't even compare. They're, they're both both brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh fond memories of the first one, yep. which was the first I seen. Yeah, yeah, same. The set, the second was an interesting take. Um, haven't not seen the Hartnell stuff. This was kind of my first experience of those two stories yes yeah yeah um so i thought wow this is great like invasion earth mm-hmm. uh, i loved the new look of the daleks i like the silver and blue the neck slats Yeah. um are a lot more menacing um so i like the new look of them mm-hmm. uh, but i also like the original and the whole the whole atmosphere because the first one is all on set Yes, yeah. the like yeah, soundstage. Mm-hmm. So that that itself has a different atmosphere in there. In all the corridors, and it's well lit, but
0: you can't really compare them, can you? Yeah, that's true. They are completely different beasts. Do you have a favorite though? Um, I've, it's sort of like like you. I think it would be sort of. I'd probably. You might be thinking it's quibbling it's like semantics. Alien and Aliens. Oh no, I definitely have a favorite of those two. Even though I love them both, I think they're both fantastic films. Yeah. But uh, my favorite of those two is Alien. Yeah. Even though uh, Aliens say... is, is even though Aliens is a phenomenally good film, um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, my favorite is Alien. But with these two, I, I, I agree with you, and I think uh, it might be saying it's quibbling with semantics. I think I would say my preference mm. um, for a long time was Dolly Invasion Earth, but I think actually now it may, act, I think it may be the first film because, as you say, mm. it, they're both very good. They're both. Uh, really entertaining just delightful films but there is something about the atmosphere of of the first one which that's it it's like Alien
1: and Aliens Danger Mm. Mouse and (laughs) Duckula there's a bit of a pattern here (laughs) yeah original's best but the second one's great
0: (laughs) well actually uh, I disagree with that when it comes to the Godfather films because the the first film is phenomenally good but my favourite's the second one
1: right no, I wouldn't know.
0: Have you never seen them? No. Oh, okay. I definitely recommend them. Yeah. <laughs> You're not interested, <laughs> are you? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> good God, man! What's wrong with you? No, <laughs> Um Yeah, I've heard they're all right. <laughs> I've heard good things about them. Um, no, no, fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, I. Me personally, I would definitely recommend um, recommend uh, seeing them because I think they are genuinely okay. uh, amongst some of the best films ever made. Right? Okay. Yeah. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Good man. Uh, you know, oh. but no, but no shame in it. I mean, there's there's loads of films which uh, you know almost I must see that I haven't. I've never seen The Sound of Music. Yeah. Uh, which has shocked a lot of people. I've never seen Goodfellas.
1: Yeah, I I recently found out you've never seen Inner Space. It's just crazy.
0: Inner sp- What's that?
1: Where the guy's inside the guy's body. Oh, and that, that scene with Robert Ricardo as the cowboy. Absolute masterpiece. <laughs> uh, hang on.
0: Oh, I think I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, no, I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, never seen uh, Dirty Dancing?
1: Oh, that's a good one. That's one of my favourites.
0: Uh huh. I, yeah. I might watch it. I've heard good things about it. Yeah.
1: <gasps> you know, so, this week someone said to me, You know, Rob, all these years, you know who you re- you've reminded me of. Oh, God's sakes, here we go. I hate it when people do this. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Uh, but it was it was a new one it was Louis Thoreau Ah, okay yeah okay i thought like, that
0: I can kind of see where they're yeah. coming from actually but I never thought right okay right
1: he's not seen I'm the kind of person that hangs out with hell-bent Christians and paedophiles <laughs> <laughs> I guess you no I was the... thinking in terms of a documentary <laughs> full of record. not actually yeah, the... yeah okay <laughs> but maybe it means the glasses and the messy hair <laughs> right I was due a haircut when he said this. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, so I did ask on Twitter um, Has anyone ever been annoyed because someone said they look like a famous person or character? Right. And uh, we did get some responses to that. Okay. Um, Luke from Who Can Convince You said, He used to be referred to as the big one from Flushed Away. <laughs> Do you know who that is?
0: Yeah, I saw, I saw that is film we, at the cinema. cinema. I don't think many oh, people did, but yeah. I know. Oh. Okay.
1: <laughs> Never heard of it. Um, The Marty McLean got in touch. He said, he, he posted a picture of some cartoon character. Same red hair, glasses and name. I love it now, but as a kid, it shit me six ways to Sunday, lol. I don't know who that character is.
0: Yeah, I saw that tweet. Uh, yeah, I don't know who that is either. Huh.
1: Please, Marty, let us know. Uh, Matt from Neither the Time Nor the Space podcast um, posted a nice picture. During lockdown, I went full Zangief from Street Fighter 2. I a picture okay. of Matt there with uh, a bit of a mohawk and a massive beard. Yeah, I think we should just feature that image on the website. Go to um, cloisterbellpodcast.com dot com forward slash leisure hive and uh, go check Matt out. Uh David also from Neither the Time Nor Space said Off the top of my head I can recall being told I look like David Mitchell, a young Alfred Molina. Right. <laughs> um that's not the worst, but then he said and an owl <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I think that's it um
0: shall we crack on with the main then um
1: yeah a couple of things to mention as well maybe we'll get to that later
0: right okay okay right uh, actually
1: no you know what I'll see, I'll see this now because you need to put some thought into it right um we have got a message from Harry from who can convince you podcast right um Luke's gone and uh, so he's got great new co-host Tim. His friend Tim. Um, so they're doing this new thing next week, their fantasy band. If you could put a fantasy band together of famous musicians, um, they want our choices. So the lineup is drums, bass, guitar, keys, vocals. You can have um, two of something if you like, like two guitar players or whatever. Um, we also want your reasons why. So if you could have a fancy band.
0: Oh that is a good question. It's it's a tricky one. Um Right. During the course of this I'm going to I'm going to jot down some names of and then yeah we'll we'll definitely come back to that. I take uh, have you have you got a list?
1: No that's why I put it to you. If it was me it would be like Th- that muppet that drums and all sorts of crazy stuff so
0: <laughs> oh money mud- yeah monster a- animal yeah animal sorry yeah <laughs> i was in the right yeah i he'd be great yeah uh right okay i'll give that some thought on I'll, I'll get on to that right so um cool. but that, that's a really good question i think i'm going to be stumped for choices actually but anyway um so yeah go, go into the main so um one of the things that we've been doing it intermittently is having a look at season 18 doctor who um but what i thought i would do is not just look at the televised uh, stories but also include the big finish audio adventures um and we've reviewed some of those um because the reason why we did some of the big finish audio adventures is that they actually they work as a um sort of a, a prequel or a a gap between season seventeen and season eighteen before we get to the Leisure Hive. So that's been the Beast of Kravenos and the Eternal Battle, uh, the Silent Scream and Rast. So we've reviewed those, and now we're actually looking at the first televised story today of season eighteen. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it took a while to get here. It, it has actually. I think we've been we've been on season eighteen for months. <laughs> it feels. We're just getting started.
0: Yeah, and the, and the funny thing is, as soon as we've actually got to a televised story, the next season eighteen thing is its big finish again. So it's going to be a while since till we get to Meglos. I, uh, but anyway, uh, we're finally here, a televised story. So I'm just going to read the plot synopsis uh, from. I'm just trying to find the page from Doctor Who: The Handbook, the Fourth Doctor, which was originally published in 1992. So this right. is the plot synopsis of the story from that book. After an abortive holiday in Brighton, Romana persuades the Doctor to take another on the planet Argolis, which in the year 2290 is the location of a giant pleasure dome, the Leisure Hive. The Argolans are dying. The radiation on their planet's surface, the result of a war with their enemies, the Formasi, has rendered them sterile. Pangle, the youngest Argolan alive, was actually created by the Tachyon Re- recreation generator, a machine used to generate games in the Hive. He now secretly plans to recreate himself many times over, forming an army of duplicates to destroy the Pharmacy for good. The Hive's leader, Mina, who's Pangled's mother, is being persuaded by her Earth agent Brock to sell the Hive to the Pharmacy, who have made a good offer, but Pangle vehemently opposes this plan. As Mina grows weaker, Pangled takes command and attempts to create his army. However, the Doctor has tampered with the equipment and an army of doctors emerges instead. The duplicates are also unstable and quickly vanish. The Hive turns out to have been infiltrated by some Famarsi agents from their planet's government who expose Brock and his assistant Clout as being renegade Famarsi members of the West Lodge in disguise. Mina and Pangle enter the TRG following the doctors tampering and are rejuvenated. Mina into a young woman and Pangle a mere babe in the arms. So uh,
1: that was very comprehensive
0: it was actually I thought that was, I thought it was a, a damn good yeah. summary so the cast and crew uh, Tom Baker plays the Doctor Lala Ward plays Romana John Leeson K9 Adrian Corrie plays Mina Lawrence Payne plays Morix John Collin plays Brock David Haig plays Pangle and Nigel Lambert plays Harden the story was, by directed, uh, was directed by Lovett Bickford it was written by David Fisher and was produced by John Nathan Turner So uh, John Nathan Turner would turn out to be the the longest running producer of um, Doctor Who, uh, producing Doctor Who throughout the entirety of the 80s. And so this is the first uh, story produced under his name. And with it, um, a whole new style. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I got a, a book on the production history of Doctor Who during the 80s, and it was called Doctor Who the 80s and um, (laughs) I didn't read it I just looked at the pictures Um, and in there at that point I'd already seen some of the um, I'd seen some Peter Davison stories Um, and I saw some pictures of what I thought was Peter Davison's title sequence but with Tom Baker's face and not actually reading the book I thought oh they were just tests for when Peter Davison would become the Doctor um, I'd seen Tom Baker stories, of course. And actually, the very first Doctor Who story that I saw from from season 18 was actually The Leisure Hive when it came out on VHS, I think, in 97, I think. And when that started, I was shocked. I couldn't believe there was a Tom Baker story with the the Starfield um, title sequence mm-hmm. and um, Peter Howell's arrangement of the theme tune. That was quite a surprise. So, um, it is a, it is a complete rejuvenation of, of what had gone on before. It, it you know, uh, Turner clearly from the looks of the show and the sound of it is, it, you know, has really taken firm control of it. And it's very much his thing from the off. Yeah. What do you think of the title sequence and the music?
1: I think it's phenomenal. Mm. It's great. Um, does remind me of uh i do associate it with peter davison yeah yeah and perhaps the top the original tom baker theme uh associates with john pertwee
0: so <laughs> so tom baker doesn't really have his own identity no. in terms of the music of the title Got sequence. no
1: identity <laughs> <laughs> um um what do you think of it
0: i think it's really good i think um i mean I, I I like the the title sequence I don't think it's it's necessarily my all time favorite but it is very good and considering the fact that this star field was made and it's entirely in camera, there's nothing computer generated they actually had to do this uh manually it's mm-hmm. all through camera that's incredibly impressive um using the camera work um back lights, uh yeah and filters. it's not just
1: it's not just boring little dots of a star field.
0: No, it's uh, it's it's really good. It's incredibly well made. I still think it holds up. It looks great, and I think Peter Howell's version of the the theme tune, uh, it's 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 brilliant because up until that point, basically, what you know, we had the original version as made in nineteen sixty three, but it had just been slightly modernised over the years. But by and large, it was essentially that original version. Um, but now we have one which has been completely uh, rearranged from the ground up. Um, and at the time, using much more modern technology, but it was all synthesizers, vocoders, and everything like that. One of the great things about uh, having uh, the Leisure Hive on DVD, and of course recently on Blu-ray, is having um, a really nice um, documentary exploring the making of the title sequence and the version of the theme tune. It's it's re- it's really nice to see. Okay. Um, so I, rec- uh, I recommend watching that of, of Sid Sutton talking about his thought process and actually the practicalities of making the title sequence, how he collaborated uh, to some extent with Peter Howell. So the music and the title sequence uh, imagery and the music matched and Peter Howell talking about his approach of uh, making the music. It just gives you a little bit of a hint, though, because over the years I've heard Peter Howell talk about in a bit more detail how he came to make um uh this version of the theme tune it took months and there's a lot of there was a lot of you know trickery manipulation of sounds you know it wasn't just a case of just sitting down and you know being a talented musician and just sitting in front of a keyboard and you know there was yeah there was play that (laughs) yeah um you know there was a lot more trickery going on um using the sound of a, a striking match and a burning match and manipulating the sound of that for one or two things is, is embedded within the mix as well. So there's an awful lot going on. Um, Delia Derbyshire, who who, m- who made the, the, first, the original version of the theme tune uh, from the 60s, um, was very critical of later versions with the exception of this. Um, the, the only other version of the Doctor Who theme tune that she liked was this one um so it it comes with Delia Derbyshire's seal of approval if if that means anything so Mm. yeah uh, yeah I totally agree with you Rob I think I think it's phenomenal I think it's really really good um and then so and then after that really strong striking start you know when we know we're in the 80s just watching it we then have uh, a tracking shot um (laughs) Rob what are your thoughts of this tracking shot (laughs) I'm in
1: two minds about it. Right. It's it's too long
0: and it's but it, is that its charm? <laughs> yeah, it is it is a bit of a funny one. So what What happened? It's uh so we have a tracking shot which goes on for a minute and a half or quite slowly and we establish that we're on Brighton beach and we're tracking along and it's very windy. We have deck chairs billowing in the wind. And we have these beach huts, and we track along.
1: Was the episode put in short?
0: <laughs> they well, that's, actually, that's these these episodes are very short. I think they're amongst the shortest. I think they they're eighteen minutes long, as opposed to the usual twenty five. So yes, mm-hmm. it was it was <laughs> massively underrunning, and ha- well, a minute and a half of episode okay. one's taken up by uh, this long tracking shot of just seeing these these beach huts. Yeah. which end on the hilarious visual cue of panning along these tra- these beach huts, tracking along, tracking along, tracking along, and then we see the TARDIS. And, and I think the visual joke is, isn't it sort of in the shape of a beach hut? Yeah. <laughs> a tent, sorry, not hut, beach tent. Um, yeah, it is a it is a bit of a funny one. I kind of like it. And it has a bit of a charm. Uh, Peter Howell uh, is providing the incidental music for this story, and he, he has... Um, I think, I think, thank God, we've got some of the music because I think otherwise this would be quite tedious to watch. <laughs> um, but it is funny. It is sort of just like I kind of like it. It does have a charm to it, but at the same time, it is it is just what's the point of this? We've established, we're, you know. Anyway, whatever it, it is, what it is. Um, K nine is promptly written out of the story. Yeah, wise move or unfortunate? Um at this point, uh Jonathan Turner wanted to get rid of K9. Uh because he thought that, you know, the setup was too smart. Uh, he K Nine was a uh, allowed things, to, you know, the tricky situations to be got out of a bit too easily, which perhaps limited the drama. And I think actually, although I love the character of K9, I think actually uh, Jonathan Turner probably had a really good point. Um and also at this point he had been a companion since, I think if I've got the years right, 1977. So K-9 right. had been in the show for quite a while. You know, we're going back to when Leela was a companion. That's how long K-9 had been in. Um, So I think and it, it's starting to ring the changes. You know, we know that, you know, Tom Baker's about to leave with that, Lala Ward's about to leave. And yeah, writing K-9 out, I think, yeah... It, Probably, probably, probably was a, I think, a good move. Mm. Um. Uh, what do you think?
1: Uh. I've never hated K nine. No, no, I haven't. So
0: uh, it, yeah, I guess it, maybe it was a wise choice, but. Uh, I mean, I, I think probably if there's if there's one quibble I have, he's, he's not written out in any particular dignity. No. Uh which I think is probably the, you know just uh aimlessly going <laughs> going into the sea and then blowing up as a result of that,
1: yeah, scene one kill the dog
0: <laughs> yay, uh, so already it's sort of like right we have a ridiculously long tracking shot, and a dog dies, um and that's the beginning of the leisure hive um and then we we arrive uh in our um. I don't want to go too too much into the story and you know uh, evaluate it scene by scene. I've already given quite a good, uh, I've already read quite a good plot synopsis of it. Um, we we go to Argolis uh, because um, it's on a suggestion of Romana because you know she's not really digging Brighton and she wants to actually have a proper holiday and she kind of liked the the sound of Argolis. So Rob, I've got a question for you. Does Argolis appeal to you as a holiday destination? Hmm.
1: From what I've seen, I have to say no.
0: What a, uh. Visiting a, um. a radiator. Uh, <laughs> a planet, uh. you know, just suffering from, you know, just huge uh, swathes of radiation. Yeah. In a, in a, um. Where's. <laughs> where's,
1: a... The le- where's the leisure? Where's. Is there a single seat in this <laughs> room that isn't reserved for, like, the elite?
0: there isn't the normal plebs who are on holiday don't have any seats yeah. they're all in the boardroom um it is a ho-
1: it should have been like a parody of brighton beach shouldn't it like, like deck chairs looking out to the radiation or something
0: actually i think that you know what? that's a really good idea yeah it should have been um it's 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 an odd holiday day i was thinking about this and just going What's what's the appeal of going to Argolis as a as a holiday destination? And the only thing, the only thing I could liken it to, was you know how in the nineteenth century you had a lot of well-to-do middle-class people, and they would go, you know, in order to better themselves, they would basically go to, you know, places like Italy, and just really bathe in um, the, the the history and the culture of the place. I thought, well, yeah. is this the sci you know science fiction? futuristic equivalent of that just all these middle class people going to a radioactive cinder uh, for the the scientific appeal of learning about tachyonics
1: yeah and the um the the argos people the argolians or- mm-hmm. Orgo- keep you keep me right
0: yeah we will we'll call them that the argolians the yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, they seem well versed in human history too mm-hmm. at one point where they're going on about um no, the Romans or something or other.
0: Yes, yeah, that's true. That 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 is brought into seems it. a bit odd, but yeah. You know. Yeah, well, you know, the, the study of classics is very important, uh, so it all feeds in. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a um, it's an odd holiday destination, I say. But obviously, it, it had some sort of appeal. But yeah. uh, as is written into the story, this has been going on for forty years, and is has seen better days, and you know, it's uh, yeah, yeah. economically, it's it's on the decline because uh, other places seem have more appeal and you know what i can believe that
1: Mm. it's like the bbc now (laughs) (laughs) yeah the radioactive wasteland
0: yeah and it's seen better days um yeah (laughs) totally agree with you there
1: um what about that i was gonna say 3d squash i mean zero g tennis or something was the, what what was that scene all about when romana said there were holograms yes what what does that mean I don't, I
0: don't know it's it's the
1: one it's the one activity there the one single activity to do uh and all those groups of people surely is th- that not what they want to do well, will they go in and be like, wait a well, look, term, I mean, so have you lie? seen the state of
0: these people out visiting our They don't look like they're that massively into athleticism. Mm. But, uh, I, th- yeah, it, it is a puzzle of that one. I always thought it was um, uh, Brock, uh, the real Brock, uh, who we just. Because uh, he talks about, you know, how other uh, holiday destinations are much more competitive. And mm. he talks about these things like um, uh, not non-gravity swimming pools yeah and and
1: but but then people have traveled through space to get here why not just do that in space
0: don't know but maybe it was alive just going well these places have uh non-gravity They've traveled sw- through zero g yeah non-gravity sw- swimming pools it sounds futuristic bob that's what all, all, all you need to know and as uh and uh so these places have got non-gravity swimming pools, but look at that—we've got non-gravity squash, eh, eh? Doesn't that appeal? Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It is a, is a, it is a bit of an odd one. And we—what actually... would
1: be your dream activity if you went there?
0: What to Argolis? Yeah. I think to leave <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> what, what would yours be?
1: Well, I don't know. I was thinking. I was thinking what. What activity could I make zero G?
0: I mean, generally speaking, I mean, the idea is because tachy- tachyons are, you know, these theoretical particles which are supposed to travel faster than light. Although I'm sure I read a couple of years ago that um, some scientists feel that they've completely debunked the theory that tachyonics actually exists. But anyway, for argument's sake, say that uh, tachyons are a thing and you arrive at Argolis and they actually prove that tachyons are a thing and it was they pioneered a whole a whole new science in relation to that i suppose i'd be interested in finding out a little bit more about that um mm. but then i could do that I, i'm sure i could be able to read about that in the privacy of my own home rather than actually i, I don't know i don't know what would appeal to be honest
1: yeah <laughs> i think the science
0: of it was a bit lazy <laughs> just a just a bit um one of the things actually it's it's not one of the things that really confuses me well it doesn't really confuse me it just it baffles me somewhat you know the model of the shuttle because we see that quite a few times during the course yeah. of this story
1: <laughs> earth shuttle approaching <laughs> yeah yeah that long long shot
0: that lot. Yeah. So, so not only do we have this long panning shot of all these uh, these beach tents at the beginning we have this long shot of earth shuttle arriving which we're told ad nosium. um yeah what i want to know is where is that where is it landing how does it marry up with the hive because we have a model of the hive are we mm-hmm. seeing the shuttle from below i,
1: below. I thought i thought we we're seeing it side on see i've always In thought the, that yeah. uh, it wasn't the, mo- the model people were just told have a have a space shuttle like dock yeah because they just bad communication
0: i don't know cuz uh, funny enough i've always thought it's a, it's a, like a side on approach it was only when i was rewatching this again on... but it doesn't are we actually? Is it? Is it landing? Is it? And we're watching it from from below. I don't know. I don't know how it marries up. It's it's an it's an odd model shot. It doesn't make sense to me.
1: Model shot. It's barely a model. They've just got something, <laughs> and then yeah, they've basically like got, got this um
0: <laughs> this ball on a stick, and shoving it through a into hole. It. It, it, yeah, but I'll call it a model in inverted commas, but I don't know what it is really. Apart from it's an Earth shot, where
1: it's coming from? Yeah, where it is?
0: <laughs> Just odd. So it's it, it's a visual which doesn't actually help anything. Mm-hmm. And actually, in relation to that, Rob, I have got another question for you. What She's... does Episode One actually tell us that isn't in Episode Two? Like, wh- what do we get from Episode One?
1: from episode one uh, we learn about the financial crisis that the hive is in mm-hmm. we get glimpses of the culture uh, we know about the <clears throat> the chamber um, and we know there's a, a mysterious villain from the outside was that in episode one? Yes, it yes, was, it was because, yes, yeah. because because the the creature turned on the machine and the doctor flew apart.
0: <laughs> yes. um,
1: yeah, episode two. I don't know. Maybe it's kind of all merged in my head now.
0: Yeah, see, because even though um, this story has some of the shortest episodes of Doctor Who ever, like each episode's eighteen minutes long, I do think it's a little bit too long. I think you could effectively completely get rid of episode... Well, well, you couldn't completely get rid of it. I think what you could have easily done is just got some elements from episode one, largely jettisoned it, and just have episode two just slightly rewritten. Because in episode one, we established that the randomizer is no longer used, so the Doctor can now sometimes steer the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Argolans are being sabotaged. That's really the main thing that you know the the two main things that we establish. But um, we could have easily had the Doctor randomly arrive on Argolis, and it wouldn't have really have changed any of the narrative. Uh, the yeah. Doctor later on uses the randomizer to defeat Pangol, so he gets rid of uh, the randomizer. So we don't really need that first those first moments on Brighton Beach in episode one. No. Um, and Argolis being sabotaged. Well. All that's in within the rest of the story, you know, people getting murdered and tricks being played and all the rest of it, and then people wanting to 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 leave Argolis, um, mm. in huge numbers.
1: Mm. So I think bits of this story were a bit <clears throat> complex. Right. Okay. Um. About who was up to what? Um. Anyway, go on.
0: Sorry. No, no, it was so it was largely that. It was just, um, just watching it. I just thought, well, really, mostly, I don't really narratively get much out of episode one. It just feels like 18 minutes of just meh. Uh, <laughs> and it, the story for me really like slowly starts to become engaging with episode two, episodes three and four, I think, is when the story is really at its best. Mm. And I think that's when things uh, really pick up. But one thing I want to talk about it because, um, well, a couple of things. One is the direction uh, provided by Love at Bickford, and this is the only Doctor Who story he would he would direct. Um, uh, because what he wanted to do was bring quite a um, strong filmic approach, and the, the, quite a few uh, attempts of shooting scenes one camera which right. okay uh at, which at the time uh was pretty much unheard of because this is you know the doctor who was made uh on a multi camera setup the result of this of having a director uh trying to film this through one camera low angles using depth of field and so on he does a very good job but the result of it was that um i think the uh, there were some overruns or it was getting very very tight Mm. uh to the wire um, and I think the result of that was uh it was just well, we can't use him on Doctor Who anymore, uh which I think's a bit of a shame, but what's interesting from that point of view, I think is that season eighteen uh and this isn't to take away from you know people like Douglas Canfield, who were you know phenomenally good directors and especially good for um for shows like Doctor Who. And you had other directors who, did, who had done very good jobs. But I think what's interesting is season 18, I think, is the very first time when you have directors coming into the show who genuinely, for the first time, um, try to bring a sense of uh, a new visual style and a filmic style and approach uh, to Doctor Who for the first time. Peter Grimwade. Um, starts directing for the show for the first time during the season later on Uh, he directs Full Circle and Logopolis Um, Graham Harper although he doesn't get a a credit he did partially direct some of uh, Warrior's Gate and the main director from Mm. from Warrior's Gate was so that kind of filmic approach uh, really starts to come in at this point. Anyway I'm kind of waffling on and I'm not giving you the opportunity to speak Rob so I'm sorry Um, Visually, I mean, did this story strike you? What, what do you think of the direction? Mm,
1: now that you mention it, no, I, di- I didn't notice it as too striking. Right. Uh, mm, maybe I haven't been watching other stories of the era um, lately to so kind of notice the difference. Um, but it, it didn't it didn't come across as strikingly odd or anything. Mm-hmm. You know when You know, when you get like, a really arty, weird film. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, when when something is kind of handheld or something, <laughs> and it just seems to, seems a bit jarring, like a weird experience. It didn't seem like that. No, no, no. Uh, but it it came across as a a well presented story. Yes. With yeah. With regards to the camera work.
0: Yeah, I definitely I agree with you there. The, sorry. Um. Yeah, I wasn't saying that it was uh, an odd arty bizarrely directed thing i just thought it was you know it it does have those filmic qualities and i i think the direction is quite fluid and um mm. there are some nice low camera angles and nice depth of field on some scenes yeah. and yeah i i think you summed it up really well i think it's a a nicely presented story yeah. the other thing which is really uh, striking is um is the music uh it's the first time that the the bbc radiophonic workshop uh provide all the music um for Doctor Who, and from this point on, uh, until I think we get to the Sylvester McCoy era, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop will be providing all the um, all the music. Um, and there's an awful lot of it. It's it's very striking. What do you think of the music? Um, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> just just that.
1: Um, yeah. W- was this <clears throat> was the music in this story reused from anything prior?
0: Uh, no. It's, it's no. all original.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I like this. It. Yeah. It's, it's not that memorable to me, I guess. You know, like some stories, like, have this kind of signature piece to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like Tomb of the Cyberman or, or whatever. But, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, not, not much to say about the music,
1: really. <laughs>
0: no, fair enough. Um... But as I said before, I think for me, episodes three and four is when the the, the story really, um, really starts to pick up and become really interesting. So one thing which uh, I think is, is quite nice is the cliffhanger to episode two is the doctor's gone into this, this generator to see if um, Hardin's experiment of actually rejuvenating people and making them look younger uh, works. But it doesn't. It has the complete opposite effect. It ages the Doctor, and one of the things that I really like is that the that cliffhanger isn't immediately resolved. So for the whole of episode three and most of episode four, um, we see the Doctor sort of uh, aged, with uh, you know, doddering around with uh, with yeah. her white hair. You
1: kind of get used to that and just forget he's not meant to look like that.
0: <laughs> That's true, actually. Yeah, it looks
1: quite convincing.
0: It is. I think it's a really good makeup.
1: Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think when he goes off to get the randomizer later on. Mm. I think he nipped off to the um the day of the doctor to do that scene and then came back.
0: Oh yeah, good point, He probably yeah. <laughs> probably did. Who knows eh? Who it knows? Is. Um and it's actually at this point uh, we also get the the uh, the theme of fascism um really start to emerge, which is which I think is uh, really nicely uh, revealed. We know that, you know, Pangael hasn't been uh, you know, th- there's something off with this this guy, played brilliantly mm. by David Haig, who I think mm. this may have actually been his first television. I'm not sure, but it's it's obviously very wow. early on in his career. Uh, and he plays the part of Pangle incredibly well. Um, and, you know, and then it's finally established, you know, he is, you know, the main villain. And he has this, these fascistic goals for Argolis, um, you know, creating this army and going to war with the Pharmacy. And how that all how all that unfolds and then becomes this dramatic uh, through-line throughout the, the the last three uh, the last two episodes, I think is really really well done.
1: Yeah, it's a good plot twist.
0: Yeah, and um, I mean I've always sort of liked the story, but as but over the years I've become less sort of enamoured with it, and I, I'm a bit more critical of it uh, now than perhaps I was in the past, but. Um, When it comes to the final two episodes, I really can't fault it. And especially, especially that scene when it's revealed that, you know, Pangle is the son of the generator, you know, how that whole, you know, how all that scene unfolds through the writing, the acting and the direction. And then yeah, uh, we
1: did, we did not see that coming.
0: No, no, and I think that's that's brilliantly done. And then uh, and then with the music, uh, with this uh, sort of like running keyboard <laughs> thing, just to add to the drama of it before going into the next scene. I think you know it works. Is a, is a nice touch. So uh, I like all that. Um,
1: <laughs> what about this story dealing with mortality? Um, I don't think it explores it that much, but we've got the. Uh, I was gonna say the balls dropping, but the, the balls dropping <laughs> on the, <head. laughs> and the balls dropping <laughs> on the heads. Um, maybe that's a bit visually that didn't work because it was too up close.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's a bit of a funny one. So, for anyone who may not have seen the story, what it is, the Argolans have these sort of cones on their heads. Uh, it's not prominent. It's a small cone, and they have these sort of small beads. I think is probably the word, Rob. These small <laughs> beads, and um, when when they're aging and uh, the, the health is fading, that the beads uh, drop off. Um, I think it's a nice quick visual uh, indication of of what's going on. Um, which, is, but obviously, I think what, which is much more effective is the makeup, mm. um, because we have um. Morix played by Lawrence Payne in the first episode who is the the main Argolan Uh, he would later appear in The Two Doctors Um, he uh, the actor Lawrence Payne not the character Morix has um, you know quite a the way that his makeup looks because the the, the Argolans look uh, they have a sort of a skin colour of a yellow and green texture uh look rather and uh it's quite vivid and then when they age obviously the the the, the color pales and you know the, the skin wrinkles a bit and I was
1: I was disappointed they didn't paint that baby at the end
0: <laughs> yeah that's true baby pangle um <laughs> yeah i can understand the practicalities of it but you know the continuity doesn't match up damn it <laughs>
1: yeah sort your priorities out
0: yeah who cares about the health of the baby? And if it was crying its eyes out already without getting, you know, getting the damn thing painted? It, uh,
1: ma- it did it, cry a lot. It
0: it, it, it it's did. like
1: yeah, it's like when a baby's crying in a shop mm. and people look really uncomfortable. It was like one of those kind of scenes.
0: It was, wasn't it? If you listen to the, the commentary, I think even Lala Ward says, "Well, if you're a baby being being held by Tom Baker, you are probably be crying your eyes out as well." Uh, but anyway. um I think really, it's that's sort of the main points I have on the story. Uh, is there anything I've missed, and you would like to discuss? Uh,
1: no, uh, some interesting themes, some cool scenes in there. Um, it was it was a good story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
0: one thing so I don't think I've watched
1: it since the DVD came out. Actually, maybe once since. But
0: all oh, right, okay. Mm. I've, I've watched it quite a few fa- few times over the years. Mm. Anyway, uh, back in. Late 2004, Doctor Who magazine uh, did a special edition of The the Fourth Doctor. And this is volume two, The Complete Fourth Doctor. And they had, uh, you know, going through the history of the production of uh, of each of the seasons. Uh, and this being part two, this is... um then this goes from the, the Key to Time to season 18. And Philip MacDonald um, did a review of The Leisure Hive. This is quite lengthy, but bear with me. Because uh, okay. I thought it was quite good. So he goes... As all of fandom knows, in 1980, Doctor Who underwent a series of momentous changes. First out of the trap was a story that dazzled viewers with an entertaining ride of colour, a complex cautionary tale of scientific hubris chock full of convoluted technobabble and mind-expanding science. It was a story in which June Hudson's found costume designs reached new levels of operat- operatic grandeur, from the extravagantly quaffed humanoids to the punningly named monsters the latter proving technically ambitious but ultimately unsuccessful under the unforgiving studio lights. It was a story replete with memorable, iconic images, lurking alien infiltrators, space-warping quantum mechanics, and the neurotic remnant of a once-proud race of conquerors, their empire reduced to dust by a terrible war, retreating to the insular protection of their many-inspired city. It was the tale of a paranoid power-play by an unhinged would-be ruler, culminating in the final realisation that the future lies not in interplanetary conquest, but in cooperation between races. And then, after the Horns of Nightmon came the Leisure Hive. Oh yes, ha ha ha, very clever, but bear with me, there's a point to be made here. When the Leisure Hive first blazed onto our screens in August 1980, we greeted it as a radical reformatting of Doctor Who from the bottom up. But at the script level, there's nothing fundamentally new about the Leisure Hive. Every fresh regime takes a while to sink its claws into Doctor Who, and with the benefit of hindsight, it is blitheringly obvious that The Leisure Hive is a season 17 script through and through, albeit one that has undergone drastic cosmetic surgery to remove those undesirable laugh lines, bringing youthful blush to its features and reducing the seven signs of ageing. The same goes for the next three stories at least. It goes on a bit, but, but um, I think he might actually have a point here. I think um, the idea that you know, the, the, the Leisure Hive, it, you know, because uh, the horns of Nyman, the final two episodes were broadcast at the very beginning of 1980, uh, and I think the, you know the Leisure Hive has this reputation of uh, it being all fresh and new and kicking Doctor Who, you know, kicking and screaming into the 1980s, and everything mm. is fresh and exciting about it. I think that's true from a visual perspective, and I think that's true certainly from the uh, from the music, so the auditory side of it. But I think from the script aspect of it um i agree with what philip mcdonald was saying i don't think it's uh i think it's It feel, it does feel like from a script point of view something from the old regime you know J- jonathan turner had uh grasped the show completely from the visual perspective but uh he and his script editor christopher hamilton bidmead had yet to really um filter that through to the stories but that would come a little bit later on but i just thought i'd mention that
1: all right okay see if we'll, um see the differences we'll move on through the season
0: yeah yeah um so we'll have um some listeners responses bear with me <clears throat> uh, just a few but um who can convince you uh podcast got in contact with us and said very fond memories of this one always loved romana 2 Peter Howell's score is very memorable and the DVD extra of him breaking down the theme tune made a huge impact on me. The long tracking shot at the start, though, yikes. Um, chap called David uh, responded to that and said, I unabashedly I unbashedly love the long tracking shot. Who says you can't have a bit of French New Wave in your Who once in a while? Mm. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, Alexander Grogan uh, said, ooh, the episode of the iconic Firmasi, a brilliant tale. Uh, no, not the mind probe, uh, got in contact with us and said, I love The Leisure Hive. My first encounter was with the novel, which I devoured because all that guff about tachyons was brilliant to 10-year-old me. The TV version is colder, more sterile, but that resonates mm. with our goal in society. It also, it's also dark and moody in places with ambitious camera work. Uh, and a rushy uh, responded to that and said, makes sense. Since this was written during the Williams era, Bidmead probably made sure it was toned down to match his hard science sensibilities. Oh. So, in terms of um, you know your your wrapping up and conclusion and score, what do you think?
1: Ooh, things I didn't really appreciate about the story. Um, I think the stuff about the tachyons and the whole science behind it. It didn't. Maybe they didn't quite do the research enough. Um, it didn't quite fit it. It's the kind of thing that I'd, I'd imagine being a season one episode of the Next Generation,
0: right? Okay, um, yeah, yeah.
1: Where the they hadn't quite took on board the. Uh, like, actual. Hardcore science and kind of. Made a decent story out of it. Mm. Hmm. I don't know, but uh, yeah. Apart from that, it was fun. I d- I don't think the visuals were that bad. Uh, of all the duplicates, it was <laughs> it was comical when they were doing the march and.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. But uh, I, I
1: had all all the Tom Bakers.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good story. Yeah, and the score is that what you're saying? Good. Yeah, good. Oh, all yeah. right, okay. Um, I do like it, uh, not as much as I used to do um for me it's average Mm -hmm. um but i do like it um but it's sort of yeah the the story doesn't could it have done better for you um well i think in some even that well the thing is even though i was saying that i feel like um the story's a little bit long it's not really. I mean, I mean that in terms of how the story is as it's presented to us, because I think by and large, episode one can largely be got rid of. There's not much that we kind of learn there. I don't think it's I I don't think it's a particularly satisfactory introduction to the story. Uh, things slowly start to develop in episode two, episodes three and four. I absolutely love. So actually, in that respect, I think really, maybe the story could have been a little bit more richer. You know, if you had a story which um, was written to the full 25 minute lengths for each of the, the episodes, yeah. you could have had uh, a first episode which really, uh, you know, provides a very good, stronger introduction to everything. And then with episode two, you start building up the mystery and the atmosphere up and build, and build that sense of, you know, things being sabotaged a little bit more. I think yeah. you know it could have been done a lot more better. And then so when you get to episodes three and four, it, it, you know, it you know it just it's just constantly building up, and then you're kind of getting into sort of the action of the story, if I can put it in those terms. So I, th- I think I think that's by and large. I think I think it's a decent story, but you, you kind of experience it going. It could have been a little bit better, and that's the yeah, thing. With the pacing. Yeah, episodes one and two I think are okay. Three and four I love. And for that to, and for that reason, that's why I'm kind of saying it's it, it's average for me, but yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah, um, so that's it in terms of uh, the leisure hive. But before we go, because I haven't forgotten about this this the dream team, um, band. Oh yes. Um. <clears throat> okay. It is a bit of a tricky one. So for the vocals, I've said. Right, my immediate thing was, well, I could have Peter Gabriel or I could have Nina Simone. Cause I think that you know they're very strong, in completely different ways, but very strong, soulful singers. Ah, um,
1: oh. would they work well together?
0: No, uh, I'm not sure. So I think I think for the vocals, it's just gonna. I'm just gonna have to single it out. I just think it's gonna have to be a single one. I hate to do it, but I think I'm gonna have to because it means getting rid of Nina Simone. Yeah, I think. Oh, I think right. I think I'll pick Peter Gabriel. Um, because I've always loved him as a mu- as a musician, uh, and in terms of a singer, um. I think he's got a very strong, uh, soulful voice, and he he, although the interpretation can be different, you know, you, you can tell that he was inspired by the likes of Otis Redding, so he he does bring quite a soulful element to his singing, and it's him as a singer and as a and as a writer, um, his music's always sort of like got me in the gut a bit, and it always gets me excited. So I would yeah okay, so I'd have to Peter Gabriel as a as the vocalist. Between the guitars, are, um it's between David Gilmore, Prince, and Robert Fripp. Um And it's tricky oh, because they Are
1: you going off skill or style?
0: It's, it's sort of all of those really. I mean um I mean of of those three, I mean Prince as a guitarist and just I mean he was prolific in what in what he did. And has provided some of the, you know, the best music ever. Always varied to style. Absolutely amazing. Um, so it could be him. Uh you got David Gilmour, famous for being the guitarist of Pink Floyd. One of my all-time favourite bands. And I genuinely love um, his... I think he is a... Even though I love his work. And it does mean an awful lot. I think compared to Prince and Robert Fripp, I, th- I, th- I think David Gilmore's out of that trio, really. Get, yeah, yeah, get right. rid. Um, Prince and Robert Fripp. I'll come back to that. Drums, it's between Phil Collins, Bill Bruford, and Manu Katché. Um and obviously i'm going off when of the height of their powers i mean phil collins was a you know just a phenomenally good drum player um, both as a rock drummer jazz he completely you know he was one of the people who completely influenced the sound of the entire 80s you got bill bruford uh, very good drummer understands jazz uh, particularly well but he brought uh, a wonderful style of of drumming with um especially incorporating uh, acoustic and electronic but i think i think i'm going to have to go for manu actually because i just think uh i just really love his drumming um i'm bringing a gi-
1: don't forget animal
0: animal's great i think he would uh you know he he is a very good drummer but i think um I think what I'm going for is like a band which provides um sort of like a bit of variety and Animal doesn't really provide that. Uh no. So no. I think Manu Kache, because I just think he's a phenomenally good drummer and he's he's a very good session session musician. Um so he has a very solid approach but also uh he he's a very accomplished drummer in his own right and brings a, a really good soul energy and understands jazz very well as well, so he can bring that element in. So Manu for that. Bass, it's between Percy Jones, Alfonso Johnson, and Tony Levin. Percy Jones, he's got a very distinctive sound. I know him from... Uh, he was in a jazz British jazz fusion band called Brand X, in which Phil Collins was in for a period as well. But Percy Jones, is, um, he's worked with the likes of Brian Eno, mm. and it doesn't... Uh, you know you know it's Percy Jones playing it. there's just something very distinctive he He really stands out. Alfonso Johnson's really good uh and he can um, I think I'm gonna have to go for Tony Levin though I just just love his um his bass playing keyboards Rick Wright or Billy Preston were were my initial options, but I think again it goes into you know Billy Preston has a you know, can really bring that soul and gospel influence to it, but I think really when it comes down to, I think Rick Wright. Right. Okay. So I need to whittle it down. It's the guitars, Prince or Robert Fripp. It's tricky, because they're both phenomenally good, but I think I've to...
1: Well, you could pick. T- you could pick two. Uh, that is true. There's two lead- lead it could it could be something, it could It'd be,
0: be a bit interesting, weird mm-hmm. Imagine if right, okay, yeah, I'm going for that. It's not a cop out because I think it could be very interesting. I'm having two guitarists, right? Okay, so my dream, mm. uh, right, let's say so. Peter Gabriel's on vocals, uh, guitar, it's uh, two guitars, yeah. We've got Prince and we have Robert Fripp, yeah. Well, their styles are completely different, the and they would have a different approach, and uh, I think. Uh, but I th- I think that, could... yeah, and I think that could actually provide some really really engaging and interesting. I just think that would be really good. Manu on drums, Tony Levin on bass, and Rick Wright on keyboards. Because I think with uh, with Rick Wright, I think I really liked his uh, oh. his one uh, well, his ability as a keyboard player. Um, but he has that wonderful ability to either play. Play the keys as a major instrument and you know uh, uh, and a major compositional uh, element, or he can just uh, he can play the keys in a very strong but providing the atmosphere sort of way. You know he's got that ability to do both, which are you know very important. So he can be a driving influence to the song, but he, he can also be very subtle. And I just love his overall approach. Tony Levin, for me, is one of the best ba- bass players ever. um. um There's nothing... You know, I pretty much love everything he's done. Manu Kaccia, I just think he's a phenomenally good drum player. Prince and Robert Fripp, their work speaks for themselves, and I think Peter Gabriel's just a damn good singer. There we go. Yeah.
1: Cool. Great. You, you might have to write that down and send it over to Harry, because... Right, okay. He's going to include it on his next podcast, I think. They're talking about the Romans. Um, so... Tim and Tim are going to watch it and talk about it while while the recording.
0: Mm-hmm. Kind of ah, right, okay, great. Of sorts.
1: Um, yeah. So what else was there to talk about today? Just what's up next? Uh,
0: yes, I think so, yeah.
1: Okay, so I'm just looking at, I think we did mention this, and I think I'm going to go with Torchwood.
0: Ah, right, okay. So Torchwood next, and is it the very first episode?
1: Uh, uh, yes, yes, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that that's <laughs> sensible. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: what's it called? Um, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Know by the time we come to, I'll do my part, research
1: yeah. for next week. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, I'll give that a watch. Uh, and then, what have we got the week after? Uh, yes finish. so it's it's
0: back to, to big finish so finally we've got to the televised season 18 and then once we've got there we're prom- we're promptly moving on from it um, again it's, it's continuing the season 18 uh, theme but it's the haunting of Malcolm Place and uh, it's another story as well Subterranea is that Torchwood episode called Everything Changes
1: that's the one you know what I wanted to say day one but that's episode two <laughs>
0: I was about to say that as well, but I I, I actually yeah. thought, oh, isn't that isn't that the the episode title for what was the fourth season called again?
1: Yeah, episode one of series four. Yeah, so that called
0: I... day one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the t- there are two day ones, and the first one is the second episode. Yeah. or
1: oh, episode season three rather. Yes. Is it? Children of Earth. Oh, is that day what it one? is? Right. Okay. Yes, Miracle Day has its uh, own episode right, okay. Yeah, we'll get there. Do you think we'll work our way through the entirety of Torchwood? Why wouldn't one we? One day? Why not? Why not? Uh, yeah. Mhm. see how it goes. Cool. Oh, well. Uh, Shall we sign off now and say goodbye? Yeah, I
0: think that's a good... It's a, good, uh, it's a
1: yep. good point to wrap it up. Cool. Oh, well, uh, thanks for listening and...
0: We'll see you next week with Torch. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah, thanks everyone. And, uh. Bye. Bye everyone. The
1: TARDIS Cloister Bell. Imminent disaster.
0: The Cloister Bell? Yes. What's that? Well, it's a sort of communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations.
1: That's the Cloister Bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant.
0: The Cloister Bell? Oh, no.